Amidst death and amidst life, our hope is in the Lord, creator of the world that is and the world that is yet to come. Amen. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. If ever there was a day to preach from the psalm, <laughs> this is that day. Luke's Jesus tells this so-called parable on the way to Jerusalem. It is then a parable told along a road to increasingly messianic action and claims. Two tasks this morning then. First, read the road, then read the parable. Read the road, then read the parable. As we read the road, I want us to notice but two steps, and these steps I'm going to call salvation and expectation. Salvation. Let's look to the road, up ahead and behind. Up ahead, the people will recognize that in Jesus, God is at last returning to Zion, carpeting His way with their cloaks they will sing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. In Jesus, God is returning to God's people. But this return, this salvation, will also mean judgment. Indeed, salvation because judgment. On a road that rises up from Mary's song, this can hardly be a surprise. My soul magnifies the Lord, for the Lord has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The Lord has brought down the powerful, lifted up the lowly. By Jesus' outstretched hand, salvation is coming. Those distant from community are restored as a people and to a people. Those marginalized by oppressive spirits, restored. Lepers shunned by the community, restored. Children dismissed by disciples, restored. Tax collectors colluding with empire against the people, repentant and restored. Indeed, the road behind still echoes to words of restoration. Today, salvation has come. Zacchaeus, too, is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The Son of Man has come in these last days and in these final steps on the road to seek and save the lost. Mary 
and Mary's son knew well what this meant. The proud brought down to receive the gift. The lowly lifted up to receive the gift. And in this way, the king and the kingdom meet us on the road. Let's shift our weight and plant our feet on that second step. We've already called it expectation. And as we stand here, we're not alone. The disciples' view of the road ahead is fogged up by well-worn lenses. They have expectations that diverge from Jesus' route to the Messianic kingdom. As they step over the brow of the hill toward the capital, expectation. They look forward and see a road to old glory. They see a way to national restoration. In the words of the gospel, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Expectation. We who know how the road is mapped out can't help but say to the disciples, read the road. Look over your shoulder. Jesus just promised in the previous chapter, not glory, but gore. Jesus told us at the end of the road, he would be handed over to the Gentiles, tortured, executed, rise again. But only reaching forward, Luke tells us, the disciples did not grasp what was said. On reading the road, two steps protrude. Salvation is come as the marginalized step up and the powerful step down. Expectation. This Lord would not be defined or limited by immediate glory. The road would take him to death at the hands of empire. Now that we have read the road, let's read the parable. For it is because of the steps and missteps on the road that Jesus tells this parable. Here is a would-be parable depicting domineering, extractive, and exploitative power framed and fed by imperial patron-client arrangements. Whether the story of Ethnarch Achilles, son of Herod the Great, or some other historical character or caricature is the background to the parable matters little. Client rulers were cruel, and they were unpopular. What is clear is that the gospel directly challenges empire. We have already seen that on the road behind and on the road ahead. Jesus' kingship challenges Caesar and stands in distinction to the authoritarianism depicted in this parable. 
Jesus is no king by virtue of court, intrigue, or an empire lobbied. His power is not exercised to exploit the people. He lifts up the suffering. He will not slaughter slaves. As liberator, he will lay down his life for others. And when this Jewish Jesus looks out on Jerusalem knowing that it will fall, no vindictiveness rises up. He breaks down and weeps over the city. The so-called parable of the pounds is then as much parody as it is parable. This is not a picture of Jesus' lordship. It is a parody of the kingdom of God. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, we are given a parody as parable describing the very forces that Jesus and his followers must resist as they proclaim a lordship that stands against domination. Ironically, the only character that comes out of the parable with any credit is the one who refuses to invest. This servant resists and refuses to be part of the ruler's program of exploitation. This servant unveils and names the nature of a structure and system that props up client leaders at the expense of citizens. This servant will not submit to this kind of cruel regime or ruler. In contrast, the other servant traders produce ridiculous profits for the unjust ruler in an unjust system. Wealth and uber-wealth are what matters to this client king. And the lesson this imperialist king teaches to those who will not bow to an extractive, exploitative system is clear. From those who have nothing even what they have will be taken away. A reader just stepping onto the road might think these words resonate with earlier words of Jesus. But how could we, readers of the road behind and ahead, think this? How could we confuse Jesus' parables of management with a parody depicting a regime that would strip mine the world, and if it were possible, strip more from those who already have nothing. How could there be confusion about who is Antichrist and who is living Lord of the gospel? And yet, have you not heard this confusion from a pulpit? Have you not read this confusion on a page? Is it possible that even in the name of Christ, you or I have preached Caesar and acquiesced in such a way that dominance, not kingdom, is taught? Jesus on the road to confront the powers. He is on the road to confront the powers embedded in an imperial system. And he will be paraded 
before empire and the puppets of empire. It is he, the resistant servant of God and enemy of Caesar, who will be brought out and slaughtered in the very presence of the powers and principalities. On the road, we read this parody as parable and see two faithful responses. We see Zacchaeus, repent, repair, redistribute. We see the resistant servant refuse an exploitative system as an effective sign of a life-giving community. And that community rises on the road beyond Golgotha to the garden tomb, on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus and to Ascension at Bethany. That community will become internationalist at Pentecost. It will have the audacity in word and sacrament to proclaim Jesus Christ Lord over all other lords. This community, by virtue of baptism, knows that deeper solidarities are at work, ever eroding the lordships of class and of nation. It will, on the way, call itself Catholic, worldwide, intercultural. On the road, we are called to discern the voice of the Spirit amidst all kinds of false salvations and false expectations. We're called to read the road on which we would bespeak liturgies, festivals, papers, books, and words. For without a reading of the road, of land unseated, of location, of our place in networks and systems, our liturgies, festivals, papers, books, sermons, are ever in danger of falling into parody. As this liturgy turns us from the table to the road, may God then grant us insight to read the road we are on, and then respond in faith to Christ's ongoing call to resistance, redistribution, repair, repentance. Amen.